Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand. We would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. So hope always comes from the outside. Hope has always come from the outside. Perseverance, persistence, they come within, from within, but hope, hope comes from without. So over the last three years, a lot of amazing and wonderful things have come into my life. I didn't ask for any of them. It's difficult for me even to know when and when not to talk about them. I always get a little bit nervous about that, particularly here at church, because I'm afraid some folks will think I'm bragging. Other folks say, you don't talk enough about all the good things that have come to you. And it's kind of hard to strike that balance. But the truth is, none of the wonderful things that have come into my life in the last three years are things I particularly deserved. And all of them arrive from the outside. The invitation to do the first TED Talk arrived from the outside. Same thing with the second, third, and fourth. The group coming to me talking about a movie deal came from the outside. A speaker's agency in New York City came to me. I didn't go to them. The book agent came to me. I didn't go to him. All of these good things came from the outside. And that's not unusual. Hope usually, if not always, comes from the outside. But it wasn't that I was without agency in every one of these wonderful things that have happened in the last three years. Because there's something I had to do. I had to say yes to hope. And it's a big thing to actually say yes. I had to say yes to every single one of those things and nothing was more frightening than the very first yes. The first yes was saying yes to that very first TED Talk, going back before an audience of 5,000 people, which I hadn't done since I transitioned. You can talk to Aaron Bailey. He'll tell you that it was no fun being with me the night before. I was absolutely terrified, slept not a wink. It's hard to say yes. We're going to talk tonight about someone to whom hope came from the outside, but also someone who said resoundingly yes. And not just once, but many, many times in her life. You know who we're going to be talking about. It's in the first chapter of the book of Luke, beginning with the 26th verse. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a, a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words 
and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I mean, I want you to think about that. Hello, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. She's like, what? I mean, the truth is every single person in Nazareth would have been greeted like that by the angel Gabriel because every single one of them is highly favored by God. Every single one of them had the Lord with them. The problem is none of us know it. It's how Gabriel would speak to us today. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. But what we're so accustomed to is conditional love. I had an interesting family history. I had a father whose love was extraordinary and shown most of the time. On the other hand, I had a mother who struggled with life and was never able to show unconditional love. Her love was always conditional. And when push came to shove, dad was willing to listen to her. And so yes, he even withheld his love on a few occasions. So I grew up thinking that love is always conditional. Chances are you did too. We live in an imperfect world with imperfect parents and we learn what life is about from those parents who make their love for us much too often conditional. Mary's no different than anybody else. She's suspicious. She's troubled by it. The angel, the angel goes on. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Mary said yes. Hope comes from the outside. But yes comes from the inside. And her yes was a tentative and terrified yes. And it should have been a terrified yes. She knew what everyone in her town would think. Everyone in Nazareth would think that she'd been sleeping with somebody else before her marriage to Joseph. And when Joseph agreed to marry her, she knew that would make him look like a fool in the eyes of some and like a hero in the eyes of others. But in everybody's eyes, she would be the one who was unfaithful to Joseph. Got worse. He was called to Bethlehem, the town of his birth, for a census. She was nine months pregnant. She had no interest in going to Bethlehem. But she went because she wanted to be with Joseph right now. She went because if she stayed home, she would have been killed. The only thing between her and a murderous crowd was Joseph and his protection. She had no choice but to go with him. It was a very difficult yes. And so often that first yes is a difficult yes. 
It was hard for me to say yes to transitioning. I mean, it took me decades to finally say yes. And though I knew I'd lose my jobs and I likely would lose income, I certainly did not think I would lose my life. No one threatened my life because I transitioned genders. But I said yes. You know, most of you know I'm a psychotherapist. I'm a pastoral counselor. And you know what might be good to kind of say, did you know that a pastoral counselor who's a pastor of a church is actually not able to be a psychotherapist for members of the church? Yeah, it's not ethical. So while any of your co-pastors can meet with you two, three, four times, they can't provide counseling to you in three cases because they don't have a degree in it. In my case, it's just because I'm one of your co-pastors. So yes, your friends from another church, they could come to me for counseling, but I'm not able to do that for people within the church as long as I remain a co-pastor. I don't think I've said that in a long time, so just kind of letting you know. But it's interesting when people come to me, and I know every therapist feels the same way, you really wonder how many of them are coming to you because they truly want to change their lives. As I said in communion last week, pretty much everybody who arrives in counseling arrives stuck. That's why they come to counseling, because they're stuck. And they can tell you exactly where they're stuck. Probably nine times out of 10, they know where they're stuck. And your job as a therapist is to help them remove the obstacles to their stuckness, to help remove the obstacles that will allow them to find their own answers. You don't have answers. Your answers are your answers. They wouldn't be their answers. You're just trying to remove the obstacles to them finding their own answers. And in the process of helping them do that, always they end up with decisions they need to make. And I told you last week about one of the questions I often ask when it's time for a person to make a decision that might help them get unstuck. I ask them, if you make this decision, will it enhance your life or will it diminish your life? It's a very important question. Maybe the only important question. But I find a lot of the time my clients don't want to ask that question. They want to ask a different question. They want to say, is this going to make my life easier or is it going to make my life harder? That's the wrong question. Because almost all the time, the thing that will make your life easier is also the thing that will diminish your life. And the thing that will make your life harder is the thing that will enhance your life. Whether or not the question is something that's going to make your life harder or easier is not the right question. Will this enhance my life or will it diminish my life? That is the important question. And I find a lot of people don't want to ask that question because a lot of people don't really want to say yes. So just this past week, I was talking with someone who's not a member of our church. They live in another state. And I was giving that person an opportunity to do something that could change their life. I was excited when I called them. I excitedly told them about the opportunity and their immediate response was to say, oh, I can't do that because of, and they explained what was in fact a technicality, a tiny thing. I adjusted. I said, well, okay, then maybe we do it this way instead, to which that person had another adjustment they wanted to make. The longer we talked, the more I realized this individual has no interest in changing their lives. They just want to complain about their life. 
They just want to talk about how difficult things are. They don't actually want to do the hard work of changing their life because while hope comes from the outside, yes is always difficult. The yes for Mary was hard. That first yes is always hard and always tentative and always difficult. If an opportunity to say yes or no comes into your life and the yes is easy, it might not be your opportunity. That which will enhance your life always requires a difficult yes. Yeah, hope comes from the outside, but the yes comes from within, and so does the perseverance that gets you to the final goal. Did you realize that hope plus yes plus perseverance equals destiny? That's right. Hope, which comes from the outside, plus yes, which comes from you, plus perseverance, which comes from within, all three of those things together make your destiny. Mary said yes, the most difficult yes of her life. But because of that yes, her yeses continued. And the more we say yes, the easier it becomes. I said yes to that first TED Talk. I did not sleep the night before. The second TED Talk, yeah, I got a couple of hours of sleep. Well, maybe an hour. The third one, I actually slept three or four hours. The fourth, I was back to an hour again, but we won't use that as an example. Generally speaking, when you say yes, many times it gets easier. When hope comes into your life, you say yes. And we see within three months, Mary was someone more than willing to say yes. When she goes to see her cousin, Elizabeth, who's also going to have a child, Elizabeth's nine months pregnant. Mary at this point is three months pregnant and she says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. This is a very confident woman who has learned to say yes. You know, all fall, I've been speaking to corporations, and about every quarter I change the talks that I give. They're almost always on gender equity. And through the fall, I've been giving three instructions to men, three instructions to women. The first instruction to women is, why don't you empower each other? That to me is actually the most troubling thing since I became a female, is how little women empower each other and how much they see each other as competition. But that's not tonight's sermon. That's a sermon a different day. The second thing I say to them is that they need to learn to say, yes, I've got this. Because much too often women have been schooled to say, oh, no, I'm not qualified. I've said it so many times, I don't really need to go into it in detail, but we teach our sons to be confident, but we teach our daughters they have to be perfect. It doesn't help them. We need to teach them to be persistent and be willing to say, yes. And an excited yes, and of course you're terrified. But the more you say yes, the easier it becomes. And the third thing I've been saying to them is own what you know. I find men on the whole, and of course there are a million exceptions, billions actually, 
But men tend to feel comfortable with their abilities and in fact, often will exaggerate them. Women generally are about two, I don't know, three times as capable as they will tell you they are because they've been taught not to be confident, not to own what they know. But look at Mary here. Mary is full of confidence. She's owning what she knows. Generations are going to call her blessed because she is the one who gives birth to the Son of God, to the Savior. That's the second step of saying yes. The first is a tentative, frightened yes. The second is a confident yes. And the third is the yes of the years. The third is the wise yes. It starts when Jesus is 12. They go to Jerusalem for a festival. They leave. They travel two days in a big family caravan, get to where they're staying after two days, and they look around for their son, who's probably with aunts, uncles, cousins, and they can't find him anywhere, and find out he never left Jerusalem. He's two days back in Jerusalem. Now, let's just put that in modern day language and let's just kind of pick out a clan from our church, the Gaddis family. Let's say the Gaddis family for Christmas decides to go to Disneyland because John is the one who gets to make the decision as to what they're going to do for Christmas. So they all go to Disneyland together and they drive because, you know, COVID. And so when they head back home, I mean, everybody's kind of switching kids and cars up and they drive for two days and finally get back home to Colorado. And Chris and Katie look around and I guess Griffin must be with, with John and Kate or, or, or with mom and dad. And, and so they, they call John and Kate, hey, we need to come over and pick up Griff. And John and Kate say, no, he's, he's not with us. Oh, he must be with John and Sally. And so they, they call their parents and John and Sally say, no, no, no Griffin here. And so they realize they have to drive two days back to Disneyland. And when they get there, they find him off with the people who run Disneyland somewhere talking about what their next ride should be. And so Katie looks at him with only that look that a mother can get as if to say, who do you think you are? And he looks back at her as if to say, what? I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. That's exactly what happens here. Just take away the Gaddis family and Disneyland and all that. And Griffin, it's Jesus. They go back, they find him in the temple. And he's like, what? What? I'm just about my father's business. And she says, yes. Yes, you are. It's the yes of the years. It's the yes of wisdom. It's the yes of those of us who are older than dirt. It happens again. Jesus is ready to begin his ministry. They've been talking about it for a long time. They go to a wedding together. They run out of the good wine. She thinks, okay, an opportunity for him to go ahead and begin his ministry and says, Jesus, why don't you turn the water into wine? We, we really need some better wine. So why don't you do that? He proceeds to rebuke her. Who do you think you are to ask me anything? It's not my time yet. And then he proceeds to turn the water into wine. You can see Mary thinking, really? Really, you had to do that? I mean, if you were going to turn the water into wine anyway, did you really have to rebuke me in front of everybody? But she just says, yes. Because she knows from the angel, this is a different child. Same thing happens later. The family, just like everybody else, thinks he's going to be the new political king of Israel. He's going to become the director of the nation. And 
He's hanging out with the poorest of the poor and the lowest of the low, and his brothers and sisters are so embarrassed by him, they go to bring him home, try to get mom to go with him, and she's like, mm -mm. no, I don't understand what he's doing any better than the rest of you. But I said yes to this child a long time ago, and I'm not going to go and bring him up. She says yes. And then the most significant yes of all, Jesus is hanging on a cross. And among his last phrases, he says to John, pointing with his eyes, I imagine, to Mary, behold your mother. And to Mary, he says, behold your son. As if to say, maybe John, maybe he can be the son to you that I never was. And Mary says, yes. Because Mary knew the truth that every mother and every father must come to know. These children, they're not really ours. They're ours for a season. They've been given to us to care and nurture. But they're not really ours. And even our children themselves know it. As we tuck them into their beds, they are the first to come to realize these people who love me so much and tuck me into bed, they do not know who I am. Only I can know who I am. They give me hope, but I'm the one who must say yes to my own life. I'm the one who must decide who I am. I'm the one who must say yes and persevere. I am the one who must chart my own destiny from this hope my parents have given me. And the best parents know what Mary knew. But you're going to have to do the hardest thing you ever have to do. You're going to have to let them go. You're going to have to say yes and watch them go out into a terrible and difficult and frightening world. But you've given them all you can. And what you give them must sustain. And so you ponder these things in your heart. That, my friends, is the yes of the years. That is the wise, yes. At the end of World War II, Dag Hammarskjöld brought the Bank of Sweden back from the brink of disaster. He came the Swedish diplomat to the United Nations and after a short time, the United Nations was seen by all the other people there as an extraordinary human being and was recruited to become the Secretary General the head of the United Nations, he didn't want the job. He was recruited for it. And in 1953, Dag Hammarskjöld became the Secretary General of the UN. In the midst of the Cold War, as it escalated, and it was a terrible time. The Russians thought he was in cahoots with the Americans. The Americans thought he was in cahoots with the Russians. John F. Kennedy was angry with him because he spent too much time with Khrushchev, who was angry with him because he spent too much time with Kennedy. And on September 18, 1961, while he was on a diplomatic mission, his plane crashed, probably brought down by terrorists. At his funeral, thousands said he was the greatest of the great. And both John F. Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev said, agreeing on just one thing, this man was the greatest diplomat of the 20th century. Dag Hammarskjöld was a man of faith. 
and he had a premonition about his death. And he wrote in a journal, and that, that journal became the wonderful book, Markings, which I would highly recommend. But one of the things that he wrote in that book, he wrote shortly before he took that trip to what's now Zimbabwe, where his plane was brought down. And he said these words, night is drawing nigh for all that has been, thanks. For all that shall be, yes. Night is drawing nigh for all that has been, Thanks. For all that shall be, yes. That's the yes of the years. That's the yes of wisdom. That's the yes I yearn for, but probably will rarely achieve. It's the yes that says, God is here. God is love. And God's love is enough. That is the hope we need. Our job is to say yes. God, thank you for Mary, this ordinary girl from an ordinary town who didn't even get what none of them got, that she was beloved, that the Lord was with her, that she was highly favored because we all are. Give us courage, God to say yes to hope when it arrives and to say yes over and over again, no matter how difficult it is. And to love you enough and trust you enough that eventually we're able to say, for all that has been, thanks. For all that shall be, yes. Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.